whenever we talk about doing research, it's one of those times that it it seems to me to touch on a sensitive area for a lot of people. Because we all have these, uh, we all have a set of beliefs, right? We all have some set of things that we hold to be true. And those set of beliefs that we have aren't just something that uh, um, we hold casually. The things that we believe, our, our beliefs about the world, are a part of our identity. It's a part of, of who we are. In fact, and, and I'll have to track down the actual study on this if any of you want to look at it, um, it's there. It's just been a number of years, so I don't recall. But there was a study that was done on what happens in the brains of people who receive direct evidence that something they believe to be true is in fact not true. And we assume that what happens when when we tell somebody that, you know, we have proof that their belief is false, that they will change their minds. But it's a much more complicated thing than that. It's not just a matter of here is the evidence, therefore your mind is changed. What actually happens is it triggers a kind of panic response, a, a fight or flight response, as though evidence that is contrary to existing belief poses some kind of existential threat to the person. To put that another way, if someone provides you proof that something you believe about the world is not true, the way you experience that is like they're threatening you physically. It's like, it's like someone's threatening you with violence when you receive evidence that something you believe is not true. And so the, the converse is true. If you provide someone with evidence that something they believe is not true, the experience of that person is like you are subjecting them to violence, or at least to the threat of violence. And so it's not a casual thing. And I think that that goes a long way in explaining how we seek out information and how we seek out evidence. Because if the stakes are that high, if the stakes are, are life and death, which is how our brains react, right? That's how our brains react. The stakes are, are life and death. Then it seems kind of counterintuitive, maybe even impossible, to to seek out information in any kind of objective manner. Because what you're really doing then is you're seeking out your own annihilation. You are pursuing uh, uh, something that threatens you. And that's just, that's so counterintuitive. That's so, so off the wall that I'm not sure anyone could reasonably claim, claim to do it. And yet I'm asking you to do that, right? That's, that's one of the requests that I have in this class. Do this thing that by my own admission is exceptionally difficult to the point of being impossible. Well, yes, unfortunately, that, that's where we are. But we've talked about interest, right? We've talked about writing about something that interests you, and we've talked about influence, about you know understanding your sphere of influence and, and your paper doing something more than just reporting on information arbitrarily, but being something that really impacts the world. And if that's the case, if it's true that what you write can have a material impact on the world, then I think it's a, a moral requirement. It's necessary that we make sure that the things you're writing are, to the best of our ability, true. And so we have to wrestle with that idea of truth, and we have to wrestle with the idea of evidence. 
and we have to accept our own limitations in those areas. You know, usually when I, I select uh, examples for what I'm going to, to choose to show what I'm talking about or when I'm selecting readings for something, I, I usually try to stick to secular examples. And even though I teach at a Christian university, there's a reason for that. Um, I've always found myself the professor who people who are on the fringes tend to come to, which makes sense because I often myself was on the fringes and my friends are fringe people. So I, I've always sort of been happy to dwell in that, that world that some might find uncomfortable. Um, and so I, I tend to gravitate towards secular examples because inevitably some of my students are or are becoming atheists or agnostics at the very least, or perhaps are some, some theistic religion that's not, not Christian. And so they find themselves in a fringe position. It's not that I don't hold Christian beliefs, right? I am a Christian. Obviously, I wouldn't seek to, to teach at a Christian university if I weren't. But... Um, I want my examples to be accessible to people who are struggling with their faith, especially if um, they ever wanted to talk to me about mine. Um, and so it's with a little bit of uh, chagrin that my discussion on truth is such a religious one. And, and I, I use that word religious intentionally. Not This is not a spiritual, it's, I guess one could argue it's spiritual, but this is an, an exegetical approach. We're going to be talking specifically about a passage of Scripture. And it's one that I've always struggled with. It's Hebrews 11.1. 1. And growing up, this really bothered me. This is, uh, it says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And the reason this bothered me is not because I had this problem with my own faith. I was fine being sure of what I hoped for and certain of what I did not see. That didn't bother me. But what I didn't like was the permission for other people, right? People who were wrong in my mind to be sure of what they hoped for and certain of what they did not see. We can, we can think of all kinds of counterfactuals, examples of times when we, we wouldn't want someone to be sure of what they hoped for. Some people hope for terrible things. And, and they are they don't see, they don't have any evidence for their beliefs, right? And yet they're very certain, and that leads them to do awful things. If you are ever wanting to delve into the kind of, of hellish depths that humans are capable of, then you can always go and look at the writings of the Columbine shooters, and they are, it's harrowing to read. Um, it is not for the faint of heart, I will tell you that. So is faith an unqualified good? Because it seems that the the Columbine shooters were were sure of what they hoped for. They were certain of what they did not see. And that led them to a terrible action. Uh, when I think about the conviction that it must take to board a plane with the intention of using it as a weapon to murder people, including killing yourself and believing, being certain uh, uh, of something that you can't see, it's hard for me to state that faith is an unqualified good, and yet Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. So I always struggled with this passage. And when I was trying to come up with an example of what to talk about, with how do I know what is true, 
uh, uh, this is the one that, you know, it occurred to me. One of the things that I'll do often, um, and, and if you've listened much to any of my talking about my upbringing, you'll understand why, is I'll switch back and forth between translations of the Bible. I loathe the New Living translation. I cannot stand to hear it read. I cannot stand to read it. And I, I, am, I, I like the NIV. Uh, I like the NIV just fine. Um, I think my current favorite is probably the, the NKJV. Um, but, but the original KJV, I think I just said I, I loathe the NLT. That's not true. I loathe the message. I'm getting my trans. I'm sorry. I've got a thousand different tabs open up here, so I'm looking at a bunch of different, <laughs> bunch of different things. I don't hate the New Living Translation. I'm sorry. And if my mother ever listens to this, I'm very sorry because she likes that translation. Uh, I, I can't stand the message. But um, the, my current favorite is probably the New King James Version, but I always check the KJV because there's interesting things in the KJV, words that are different. And the words for Hebrews 11.1 1 are very different in a meaningful way. This is, this is it in the KJV. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, these words are rhetorically significant words. And I don't mean rhetorically significant in that they are significant to our interpretation or significant to the bias and how we read it, uh, how we might use rhetoric now, but in the discipline of rhetoric, the academic discipline of rhetoric as practiced first by the ancient Greeks in Athens and then uh, um, as a continuation of that by the orators in Rome, these are significant words, particularly this word substance. I want to look at this word substance because substance being translated sure um, is not, or being sure, that's, I'm not sure that that's a fair translation. I'm not sure that's a fair, uh, um, th those are not equal to me, right? So when we talk about substance, I think what we should take as our touchstone here is Plato's allegory of the cave. For those of you who are unfamiliar, I'm going to give you a very, you know, botched summary, but the Wikipedia article will help you more than this. But the idea was that Plato claimed anyway, that our lives are all like these people living in a cave and they are bound so that they have to look forward at this wall and there's a, a, a light behind them and that light casts these shadows on the wall. All they can see are the shadows. And so they think that the world is just shadow. That's it. Except for some few people who are philosophers, who are thinkers, who are, you know, the, the kinds of, of depth artists and psychologists and brilliant people who we admire, who can somehow rise from their chains and turn around. And instead of only seeing the wall, they can go out and walk into the light itself and face reality. That there's this world of ideas that is more substantial, that is more real than the flawed physical reality that we see. So the idea of substance is an important idea for the Greeks. Uh, it's an important idea for Plato, and it's an important idea for the Romans as well. And, and we have barely even begun to touch on what substance means. Um, you know, Pl Plato studied, studied under the, the Pythagorean school and the Pythagorean forms. Substance was what, what the, the material that makes up reality, something that we think of as kind of obvious because we have the periodic table of elements, was a hot topic of debate 
uh, you know, several thousand years ago. And so this idea of substance was very academically and philosophically invested with meaning. So when we, when we read, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, we should slow down and spend some time to, to recognize that the author here has chosen a very technical word, hypostasis in this case, a scholarly term to talk about this, this idea. So hypostasis is, is usually translated in, in one of two ways, and it's done so primarily in, in biblical contexts and religious contexts. But one is as grounds or foundation. And this is where we get the translation, faith is being sure of what we hope for. We might also read faith is the foundation. It's the, the reason for believing in what we hope for, right? And, and that's, that's pretty, pretty close. Um, but faith is, uh, or hope is, I think we should look at this as well. Uh, hope is necessarily an unrealized thing, right? It's an unrealized thing. And so if we, if we look at at hypostasis or substance as this idea of what is material and what is real, then we can read this a different way. We can say that faith is the real thing that we have while our hopes are as yet unrealized. And I think this changes this passage dramatically because we act, our actions are based on reality. Right, we have to act based on the the present material reality. Let me put this in a, in, in a different way. If I am hungry, that's a physical feeling that I have, and so I go eat a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Right, that is me acting based on a physical reality. I can pretend to believe, or even be fully convinced that I don't feel hunger, that my body does not need food. But ultimately, what will happen, even if I act on that false belief, is that I will starve. Because there is a substantial material reality that stops me from, from just choosing what is real, from just selecting totally in a relativistic way, by, purely by belief that I don't have to act any certain way, I can just choose what I want, right? I don't think I'm hungry, so I don't have to eat, and so I don't eat anymore. I would die, right? My false belief would come into conflict with the true reality, with the substantial material reality, and I would suffer for it. So we all have to act, we choose what we do, based on reality. And faith, hypostasis here, is that's the substance, that's the material thing, that is what we have. Not what is promised, Right? Not what we are, are sure will come, but the faith is the reward itself. And, and I think that's, that's an interesting thing. And I want to stop here because this is all about faith in God, right? which is a, an important thing to, to note. Right? And to look at all of the things that we treat with this kind of faith. Because if you look at faith in the Bible, depending on your translation, it appears anywhere between two and 500 times, uh, 200 to 500 times, roughly. This idea of faith in terms of faithful, faithfulness, right? The, the various ways that it appears. And it tends to be more abstract once we approach the New Testament. Faithfulness in the Old Testament often is just referring to, you know, keeping a covenant or, or maintaining a course of action. We get this kind of abstract faith that we're talking about here. Uh, more in the New Testament, but hypostasis is not a word that appears 
if you're looking at the Greek. It's not a word that appears very frequently, right? And so I think often what happens is we take this concept of faith as we understand it in just believing in something, and we apply the definition that's provided to us in Hebrews 11.1 1, broadly to other things. And we make a virtue out of certainty, which to me is another way of making a virtue out of arrogance, because we don't only treat what Hebrews 11 is talking about with this kind of faith. We treat our political beliefs, our specific interpretations of the Bible and what it must mean. Anything that we think of as obvious, we treat with this kind of faith, and we take it as a virtue to say, oh, well, I'm sure of it. I'm certain. And I think that is more likely the case to be arrogance than it is to be the kind of faith that's talked about here, hypostasis. Truthfully, I don't even think it's about politics or the obvious or, or anything like that. I think it's more about what makes us comfortable. And this goes back to the first thing that we talked about. When we're presented with evidence that we think is wrong, evidence that something we think is wrong, that our beliefs are untrue, that makes us deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And so when I task you, as I am in, in this, this paper, with going out and finding evidence of something, the kind of evidence that you're prone to look for is the evidence that confirms your pre-existing beliefs. And that's not true of just you. That's true of me, too. That's true of everyone. We want to find evidence that the thing we already believe is certainly true. Because that makes us feel comfortable. And if we just go out with a very open mind and we start doing our research just to see what we find, not with an agenda, then odds are we might find that at least in some small way we're very wrong. And that makes us uncomfortable. So inevitably, we avoid it. In Hebrews 11.13, this verse begins, these all died in faith, in hypostasis, these being all the people who were certain something would happen in their lives, if we're going with one definition, we're sure of it, and yet it never did. And they still behaved in a certain way, they still acted a certain way, even when the evidence pointed against that. And I think if we understand faith to be something of substance on its own, faith is itself the end, faith is itself the reason, then we can understand how one might be motivated to die in faith without the promise of what that faith would reveal. I want us to save this type of faith, hypostasis, for that which deserves this type of faith. Namely, if you have a strong religious belief, that is... That is what deserves this type of faith. This passage, Hebrews 11, is not talking about your certainty that Joe Biden is good or bad, that Donald Trump is good or bad, that liberals are smart or dumb, that Republicans are smart or dumb. Your beliefs about gender or sexuality or identity or abortion or anything under the sun, this is not what that is about. This is about your faith in God. And if you are experiencing frustration at anything that I mentioned in that very bipartisan list, then you should be aware that that's exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about and warning against, right? You 
You're going to experience that when someone challenges a pre-existing belief. But you should reserve that kind of certainty for what Hebrews 11 is talking about. Faith in God. So academically, where does that leave us? We need to find questions. And we need to use research and writing to explore answers from a place of uncertainty. That means when you set out to write a paper, you can't begin knowing exactly where you're going to go. As much as I wish that I could make that possible for you, and I wish that I could make that sort of an easy step-by-step process, that doesn't make for very good writing. The places that you find difficult, the things that you are uncertain about, that is the good soil for writing. That's where you need to be. So, What's our original question? How do I know what is true? We haven't answered that even in the slightest, right? What we have done is we have, I think, said, how do I not give the air of truth, the the certainty of truth, to things that don't deserve it? And perhaps that's the, the better approach, right? How do I compartmentalize and say, this I can treat is true. In this, I can have faith. Hypotaxis or hypostasis. Sorry, hypotaxis would be something. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of parataxis. Walt Whitman's always on the brain. Um, but this hypostasis, this I can have with with my faith in God, and I can reserve that level of substantive confidence for that alone. And in these other areas, I can be uncertain academically uncertain, truthfully, honestly, and humbly uncertain. And that's the stance that I want you to have when you begin doing research, when you start looking for answers. I don't want you looking for a specific set of answers because the nature of the internet is that you will find them. And so if all you ever do is look for answers that you are already certain of, answers that you already believe in, then the only thing you will ever do through research is reinforce your existing beliefs. And that's intellectually dishonest, and it's certainly not in keeping with the spirit of academia. So find these places in your research that are questions, and then pursue the questions, not a specific set of answers.